really, really good to see you all. My name is David Werns. Uh, I'm the Director of Missions and Mobilization here at Grace Fellowship, which means I have the privilege of overseeing both our local and our foreign missions efforts. And this morning, I also have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you today as we keep going through the book of Luke in a brand new sermon series that, Lord willing, will take us through the entire gospel of Luke. So if you would, today we're going to be wrapping up chapter 1. Turn to your Bibles uh, or open up your apps. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verse 46, but as you're getting situated in that, I want to let you in on a fun little twist to this sermon. Uh, you see, when, when Pastor Brad asked me to preach this passage about a year ago, I knew at least two things for certain. I knew, one, I would be preaching through the context of one, uh, two, two miraculous conceptions, right? And I knew also that my wife, Andrea, of 10 years, is infertile. Uh, that's, by God's grace, that's not been a, a raw nerve for us, but that's tough to ignore when you're looking at passages like this. Uh, fast forward a year now, today, uh, I know both of those things have substantially changed. I'm preaching through the context of not one, not two, but three miraculous conceptions. And my daughter, Penelope Werns, was born two months ago in August. Um, that has almost nothing to do with my message today. I just think she's really great. Uh, and it's been, fun. it's been fun to look through familiar passages with a fresh perspective, right? So uh, we can praise God for that. But back to, back to the other happy parents in Luke. Uh, let's do a really quick recap just uh, to see where Dr. Luke has gotten us so far. So he introduced us to uh, Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, right? Dr. Luke says that they are both righteous before God, that they're both old, and they have no children. He also introduced us to Mary, right? She's young, she's poor, she's also faithful to God. She's engaged to be married, and that means she also has no children. Both Mary and Zechariah get separate but very similar visits from the same angel, Gabriel, who informs them that God intends to give them a child through miraculous means, which I have to be honest with you is a little bit unfair because you look at Zechariah and he gets a, an angelic visit, right? All I get is a plus sign on a little plastic wand. And I'm not, I'm not mad, but it, it's a little disappointing. Let's, I, anyway... Enough about me. Zechariah, uh, Zechariah is told that his son is going to grow up to be a great prophet. And he's going to lead God's people back in repentance and, and towards this salvific prophecy. Mary is told that her child is going to be the son of God. He's going to rule over an eternal empire. We're still waiting to see what Pippa grows up to be. But we got high hopes. So our text today, our text today is in verse 46. In fact, let's start back in verse 39. Get a running start. Verse 39 says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women! Blessed is the fruit of your womb! And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment 
of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and for his holy name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts and their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth came, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, we shall, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what, is he, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And the fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country in Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that he should be saved from our enemies in the hands of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Father God, we love that you visit your people. Would you visit us today? Your spirit, through your word, would you bless the reading and hearing of your word to create white-hot worship in your people today? Amen. Now, if you're anything like me, You might think it's odd that people suddenly, in the middle of a story, burst into song, right? The last time I remember seeing major characters singing their way through life events, it was either Moana or Hamilton, right? So, and frankly, if you're not Maui or King George, please don't try to sing your life story to me. Awesome. Wow. But the reality is, If we base the normal Christian life over the contents of our Bible, it should be more shocking to us that we don't 
burst out into song or poetry. A conservative guess is that your Bible has over one-third of its content dedicated to either lyrical or poetic verse. Like Pastor Brian said, entire the largest book of the Bible is dedicated to music. Cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, over and over and over again, we see God's people singing to God about God. We sang before the fall. We'll be singing after the return. And we had better be singing now in the in-between. The structure and the content might vary by culture or by era. But one thing is constant. All of God's people sing. It's not just for the talented. It's not just for the musically inclined. It's not just for those who are blessed with visits from angels or miraculous pregnancies. All God's people sing. And I think these first two songs in the book of Luke can serve as a a template for us today. Grace Fellowship Church today to keep on singing for a lifetime. Even in 2020. Especially in 2020. Now it might be obvious to you, but I think it's worth mentioning that Christian worship, biblical worship, is so much more than just singing. Right? Worship is a, it's a whole life response to knowing and, and loving God. It's way more than we could cover today, so we're really just talking about one aspect of Christian worship, but it is a cornerstone of Christian worship. I'll say it again. All God's people sing. I don't, I don't want to get tangled up in a conversation about the, the methods or the, the songs or the skills or the styles. But I also don't want to water down Christian worship to just saying doctrinally accurate words a long time to the music. Right? There's a, a nuance to the kind of singing that we're talking about here. It's a, a subtle but critical distinction between a person who's singing a worship song or a Christian who is worshiping God by singing. It's kind of like listening to a person who has never been to the ocean, but describing for you a picture, a very accurate picture of the ocean, as opposed to someone who loves the beach, describing for you one of their most favorite and precious memories of the ocean. Right, that picture could be incredibly detailed, high resolution. But you know as well as I do, there are some things about the sea you just can't capture with a camera. And with real Christian singing, there are things going on inside of our heads, inside of our hearts, that just cannot be observed by seeing or listening. Christian singing is an internal reality being expressed through a physical activity. It's an expression that God has ordained for us to respond back to him as he reveals himself to us and interacts with our lives. How else could you hope to express this complex, swirling ocean of emotions that that wells up when you consider the infinite, multifaceted perfections of God? His unending love and patience. 
His blinding glory and holiness. His infinite power, his wisdom, his creativity. More specifically, right, his, his compassion and generosity towards me as an individual. To find me, to rescue me, to suffer for my crimes, to absorb the wrath that God patiently held back for me. And then to go further and adopt me as his child, to give me all the rights and privileges of a favorite son. How do you describe the indescribable? You can't. But we have to try. So we sing. Mary says, my heart magnifies the Lord. Except, except she didn't say it. She sang it. Because when the Lord is magnified in your heart, you have to do something more than just say it. So we sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. All of God's people sing. But it's not always that easy, is it? We are a fickle people. It's too harsh. We are a finite people. We don't have God's stamina. We can't stay focused on things as long as he can. That's why we can sing God's praise in the shower and and be lost in a whirlwind of life before our second cup of coffee. Even more so now, right, with home offices, hybrid school schedules. But God's command, God's command to worship him stands. And I think if we are honest with one another, there's more than just busyness going on behind our inconsistent praise. At least for me, that vast, swirling ocean of worshipful emotions can oftentimes feel as dry and cold as the Arctic tundra. Disappointment, doubt, discouragement, fear, fatigue, loss, loneliness. At one time or another, all of these have frozen my lips until even the most glorious and profound truths feel like meaningless mumbling coming off a numb tongue. I don't, I don't think I'm alone in this. I only know a few of the hardships that are represented in our church family. Right? Just, just a little bit of the difficulties that people are facing on a daily basis. But I know well the corrosive effect that sin and stress, either in us or around us, can have on our ability to praise our God. And I know that God's commandment to sing and to encourage one another through songs and hymns has never been more difficult to obey. But I also know that God's commands will always be accompanied with his divine grace. And so, through his faithfulness, we can remain faithful to him. 
And one of God's most consistent means of getting that grace to us is the example and testimony of other believers. So in the time that we have left, I want to highlight three sources of spiritual warmth that I know Mary and Zechariah drew from that I think are available for us today that can thaw and stoke our passionate praises. Heat source number one. They had a continual submission to God's sovereign plan. Again, I don't know about you, but it feels like every plan I've ever had has been sent through a wood chipper. Right? You can see little pieces here and there, but it's mostly sawdust out there. And according to Luke chapter 1, that's not just a Dave problem. Right? That's not just a 2020 issue. If you look at Mary's life in one conversation, every aspect of her life, her future, was completely shredded too. Right? With one conversation with an angel, every aspect of her future was shaken. Zechariah's plans didn't fare much better. Right? At first, it looks like he's getting everything he ever wanted. He gets to serve God and have a son. It's just a few decades too late. And while he might have dreamed of raising a faithful son who would one day wear the robes of a priest and lead God's people and worship at the temple, instead he's promised to have a boy who will grow into a wild prophet. And while priests are treated with respect and honor in Israel, Zechariah knows his history. He knows the prophets in Israel usually have a very short life. It's filled with persecution, conflict, running for your life and hiding in caves. Yet we don't see a bitter refusal from these folks. We don't see a a, a fatalistic resignation. We see a cheerful, willing embrace. We see submission to a good, sovereign God. Look in verse 48. Verse 48 and 49. Mary says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Right? We can see that Mary has already chosen to believe that the life God has planned out for her is better than the one she had planned out herself. We can see the cheerful submission even more clearly in Zechariah's song. Skip down to, to verse 76. He says about his own son, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. A tender mercy of God. You see, as a priest, Zechariah is not going to be able to disassociate the forgiveness of sins with the blood of a sacrifice. And he knows what happens to people who go around pointing out other people's sins and calling them to repent. But he calls it tender mercy from God. Because Zechariah is choosing to trust God's plan. 
Just like Abraham in the Old Testament chose to trust God when God told him to sacrifice his miracle son, Isaac. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham reasoned that a God who was able to give a miracle son to an old man could make the end of the story okay, even if it meant the death of that son. And Zechariah calls it tender mercy. They're trusting God knows what he's doing. And there are plenty of reasons why the events that actually made up Mary and Zechariah's lives were not part of the original plan. These are difficult circumstances. But here's the funny thing about submission. You really can't submit to a plan that was your idea to begin with. I'll say that again. You really can't submit to a plan that was your idea to begin with. Folks, that's exactly what makes continual submission such a wonderful source of praise from God's people. Because when we're willing to submit, right, when we are willing to cheerfully submit to God's good plan, his redirections, we are affirming a foundational, universal truth that there is one God in the universe, and it is not me. When we submit to the all-powerful, sovereign God's good plan to redirect our lives, we affirm that he is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. And it frees us to finally step off that treadmill, the relentless pace of trying to make my life work. And we can let God be God. This one might sting a little bit, but it's for your own good. Some of us have been in church a long time, and we still struggle to work up an affection for God that might lead to some heartfelt, passionate praise. And if you've been coming to grace this whole time or or even a little while, I know that God's sovereignty is not foreign to you because we talk about it basically every week. No, your problem is not knowing God is God. You got that. Your problem is being happy that he's God. You're either routinely frustrated that he's not on board with the program. Or else you haven't lived long enough for him to really alter one of the plans that you hold dear. Either way, it's not not a sinful place to be. But neither is it a particularly worshipful place to be. I know because I've been there. And let's face it, God is really good at being God. And we can either be happy about it or not. But consider, an eternity with God is only going to be paradise if you actually like the guy for who he is. These redirections in our lives, these sovereign redirections that God has ordained, they are an opportunity to join and and mimic and imitate Mary and Zechariah and literally all of heaven in joyfully, cheerfully, 
humbly rejoicing in God being God. Please, I'm begging you, don't waste those. Honestly, there's probably been enough shattered dreams in 2020 that we could just say amen here and work on cheerful submission for the rest of our lives. It's not where the songs end, and I've got a little more time, so let's keep, let's keep going. The second source of heartfelt praise, right? The second warmth of heartfelt praise comes from celebrating, celebrating God's finished work. In Mary's song, in verse 50, right, we can see in verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54 and 55 says that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Mary's thinking back. Mary is remembering the stories, all the stories she learned as a child about God's faithfulness to Israel in their history. The generations where God spoke to them, where God visited them, where God helped them, rescued them, gave promises to them. In fact, Mary's song is so similar to an Old Testament hymn that most scholars think she probably just tweaked a few words to personalize an old familiar song. And we don't have time to look at that story, but I think it's interest, no surprise that she remembered that song in particular because it was about yet another miraculous birth. I think we're picking up on a pattern here. If you can read it on your own, it's in the book of 1 Samuel. It's the story of Hannah giving birth to Samuel. So even in the origin of this song, Mary's song is a remembrance. She's going to recall back to all that God did in and through the Old Testament hero, Samuel. And Zechariah, since he's much older and a a religious leader, it's no surprise that his song has an even more robust treatment of God's historic faithfulness. In fact, basically the entire first half of his song is a history lesson pointing to God's goodness. We could spend uh, all day just listing the ways that God has saved and preserved and delivered his people over the years. We spend even longer talking about the the covenants that God has established and how he himself has been faithful to them. But I think the most stunning thing about these two songs, and as they celebrate the finished work of God, is that here in Luke chapter 1, Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And so, as they're celebrating the stories about God's faithfulness, the climax of those stories hasn't even occurred yet. But it has for us. We're on the other side of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Right? These folks, all they had were pictures and foreshadowing. We have the risen King Jesus in view. Put it this way. They had the theological equivalent of postcards and Polaroids. And we have the completed work of God's word and his indwelling spirit to lift us in praise. How can we not celebrate? I'll tell you how. (laughs) It's because our world, our enemy, our, our own flesh would have us only look at the unfinished work 
of God. How easy is it to see the brokenness and pain all around us, even inside of us? And we can't bury our heads in the sand. We can't ignore the brokenness in the world. And we certainly can't tolerate the sin that, that still clings to us. But the pain, the messiness, the sin, what I'm calling the unfinished work of God, it's not meant to be seen in isolation. Right? We can't look at that as if it existed in a vacuum. It's meant to be looked at through the lens of God's finished work in Christ. Even our own journey of sanctification must be looked at through the lens of Christ's finished work on the cross. Through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. The finished work of God cannot be treated like some family heirloom that we put on the mantelpiece. Or, or we stick in a drawer somewhere and bring out at holidays. Right? Talk about and reminisce with out-of-town family. Right? That's not going to cut it for our life of worship. If we're going to be passionately singing God's praises for our entire life, then the finished work of Jesus that God accomplished through the death of his son has to become for us an everyday carry kind of thing. Right? His deity and his incarnation, his, his perfect obedience in life, his perfect submission in death, the flawless defense against temptation, all of these things need to be closer to us than our keys or our wallets. Right? The, the very feel of the finished work of God on the cross, it needs to be more familiar to us than our phones. How his blood paid our crimes against a holy God. How his person absorbed the righteous wrath that we had stored up. Our rebellion credited to him. His righteous, righteousness credited to us. Right, the sting of death being drained of all of its venom. The event that for the very first time since the Garden of Eden, humans have the opportunity and the power to say yes to something besides sin. This is the kind of stuff you can't leave at home. This is the kind of stuff you turn around for when you get to the end of the street and you do that, right, that spot check. And you realize, I forgot, I forgot my sunglasses, I forgot my watch, I forgot my whatever it is. You turn around for that stuff. Folks, songs for us, they're that moment of that divine spot check where you, did I forget something important? Except the finished work of Christ, it's not some add-on to make your life more comfortable or convenient. It is the very source of our life. And while it might make up the bulk of the content of Christian worship, songs anyway, right? it is in fact the very source of that content. We can't worship if we forget those truths. And yet... If we're not careful, if we're not deliberate, those glorious truths can become just as stale as yesterday's popcorn. Good celebrations take time. They take effort. They take planning, maybe even some money. But it's worth it. Because that effort in itself is part of the celebration. It shows the value of the thing we're being celebrated. 
Think back, think back to the most recent celebration you were part of. I know it might have been a while. Right? A wedding, an anniversary, a birthday. For me, it was a wedding. Think back. Try to answer a question. How did you know who was being celebrated? Right? If a total stranger walked into that event, how would they know whose special day it is? At a wedding, it's pretty easy. The ceremony has tons of clues. Who's standing, who's talking, who's kissing. But the real party, right? The real party happens after the ceremony. They pull out the food and the music and the reminiscing. And you end up sitting with friends or relatives that maybe you haven't seen for years, and they just start pulling out stories. We make toasts. We make collages. We have slideshows, but it's, it's those stories that we've heard hundreds of times before. The ones that are worth telling, the ones that are worth retelling. It's those stories that are actually being celebrated. The culmination of the combination of those lifetime stories. Please don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. Not saying that every time we worship God, it needs to be a big production, right? With decorations, lights, a budget, a planning committee, right? It can be very quiet. It can be very simple. It could even be casual. It just can't be impersonal. If you don't have stories to tell, I don't think you can really celebrate Let's face it, all those plus ones at the wedding, they might be singing, they might be dancing, they might be eating right along with the grandmother of the bride, but they are not celebrating like she is. They don't have her stories. The good news is, you don't need to know Jesus very long at all before you have a lot to celebrate. Friends, if you don't know Jesus in a personal way, I strongly encourage you, talk to someone who does. Ask for some of their stories. What has Jesus done in their life that's worth retelling? I'm so grateful uh, for the worship teams here at Grace, for Brad Spence and his leadership, because our songs are always packed full of references to God's finished work. I would encourage all of us not to waste those songs. They can help us remember. They can help us remember the stories in our lives, in our families' lives that are worth retelling. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. He has shown the strength with his arm. He has helped his servant Israel. He blessed the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. These aren't just lyrics for Mary and Zechariah. right? These are very specific stories that they're thinking of. Very specific events and people that they're remembering. Where God did the impossible and he saved his people personally.
I have those stories. Do you? I think most of you do. If you would remember them. But that's exactly what the hard work of worship really is. It's, it's simultaneously holding on to these great biblical truths with one hand and connecting them to real personal stories in real time with the other. It takes effort. But that effort will produce a fruit that is worshipful, heartfelt, passionate, white-hot worship for God. Some of the very best songs we have work very hard to help create that connection. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. My Savior was crushed. He was bruised. Bore all the sin that I own. Lovingly hung on a tree, drinking the wrath meant for me. Hallelujah. This truth remains. I am saved by Jesus' name. When fiery darts are thrown, I do not fight alone. These songwriters have done their job well, hammering home the foundational biblical truths. Now it's our turn to do the work. It's our job to connect these truths with personal, specific stories of our lives and our circumstances. Folks, just like a good party, worship should leave you invigorated and probably a little worn out. It's holy work. And celebrating the finished work of God, it does take up the bulk of Mary and Zechariah's songs, but it's still not the final source of their praise. In fact, this third and final source of warmth for our cold worship, I submit, is the the actual hottest and can fuel the loudest and most passionate singing of all. The reason this last source is so powerful is because our cheerful submission to God, our our robust celebration of his finished work, they'd be worthless without the inevitability of his eternal victory. The old saying goes, he who laughs last, laughs best. And if Jesus isn't the last man laughing, we actually have very little to sing about. Folks, that's why the resurrection matters. That's why the down payment of our eternal future through the Holy Spirit matters. It's like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
15, that if for only this life we have hope in Christ, we above all men are to be most pitied. I love the King James. It says, we of all men most miserable. Folks, the pending return of our risen King Jesus and the hope of an eternity spent with him, fully knowing him, fully loving him, the same way we are known and fully loved by him. That sweet, suspenseful anticipation. That's the stuff that makes you sing a little louder. It can be a little tough to see it in the text. But check out verse 47. Verse 47, Mary says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That salvation she's rejoicing in hasn't quite happened yet. Look at verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She knows that the end of the story will be a happy one. And then in verse 51 and 53, the downfall, the proud, the mighty, the rich, those have all been used at one point or another to to rally people for social justice or for a revolution, but I think a more consistent interpretation is that even as a poor young woman born into an oppressed people, living under foreign rule in a military-controlled colony, even with all that, Mary is so convinced of the promised Messiah's victory, that she is singing about the effects of it in the past tense. She is so confident that her Messiah will make things right that she's singing as if it's already happened. Zechariah does something very similar in his song. Right? He might have had his doubts when the, the angel Gabriel dropped the news on him to begin with, but right now he is so confident of the outcome of his son's ministry, that he can already see it playing out from start to finish. Folks, our songs today can be even more confident than these. They were just seeing the beginning of the end. We know, we know the whole story. We know how it actually ends. Revelation 7, verse 9 John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The next chapter, angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of nations. No longer will be any curse, but the throne of God 
and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. And the dead will rise imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. imperishable, And this mortal body put on immortality. For when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, our reigning, ruling, risen King Jesus is returning soon. The curse and death have expiration dates. Even our sin with all of its pain, all of its guilt, all of its shame, it will fade into the rear view. Jesus will have the last laugh. I know it. And until then, we sing. We sing in anticipation of his inevitable victory. We sing in submission to his sovereign good plan. And we sing in celebration of his finished work. Let's practice now. Let's sing.